I want to read from read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again... The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this sweet and precious privilege that we have this evening to be able to gather here together to worship you. And God, we thank you that you have been kind to reveal yourself to us through your word. And God, we thank you that you have been kind to display your glory and your majesty and your splendor. And God, we pray that this evening, Lord, that you would be pleased uh, to turn our face towards you, that we may behold you as you are. And God, we thank you that in your holiness and in your righteousness, that you um, are too holy, that you cannot be looked upon 
by the natural eye. God, we thank you that you've given us Christ through which we're able to see you and we're able to worship you and we're able to love you and we're able to live for you. And so we thank you for the kindness that you've poured out richly upon us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God, we ask this evening that you would be pleased to exalt high the person and work of Christ. Lord, we, we do not, Lord, it would be foolish for any of us to try or attempt to build on any other man's foundation. There is no other foundation other than the foundation which has been laid in Christ Jesus. There's no hope that we possess outside of Christ. And so tonight we're not here to elevate one pastor over another. We're not here to elevate one man over another. We're not here to elevate one lady over another. Lord, we want to exalt in one person, and that one person is Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would help our brother this evening, Mr. Davis, and we pray that you would anoint the preaching this evening. Fill him with your Holy Spirit to disclose the things of Jesus Christ to us from your word. And God, we pray that you would be pleased to turn turn the facet of Christ another notch so that we may behold more and more and more of his beauty. And God, we trust that what you reveal about Jesus Christ tonight will be enough to satisfy our thirsting and hungry souls. So get the glory, we pray tonight, as we sing to you, as we pray to you, uh, as we hear from you as we depend upon you, do this, Lord. Do this, God. We, we are a, a needy people, Lord. We, we, we're so needy, we don't even have the ability to be able to comprehend the depth through which we need you and by which we need you. So, God, we, we cry out to you and, and, and beg of you, implore you to dwell among us in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you, Lord. Make us a people who are saturated with you. Make us a people that you are pleased uh, to dwell among. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would do surgery on us this evening and just expose our sinfulness, Lord. Expose our indifference. Expose any sort of um, unbelief that may be there. Deal appropriately with us, we pray. And deal with us in ways that we don't even know how to request uh, this evening. Um, we, just, we just ask, Lord, we just beg that you would turn your face towards us in a favorable way this evening. Do this, we pray, for your glory and for our joy in Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll read again 21 to 23. 1 Corinthians 21 to 23, chapter 3. Therefore let no man boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All are yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now, why did Paul say that 
here in this letter. If you're familiar with the Corinthian church, you will know that there were divisions among them. Divisions due to man-centeredness. Paul was concerned about that and he wrote about it. He wrote about it in the opening chapter. There were people in Corinth who were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. And Paul realized that that was a fundamental error. He deals with it throughout these opening four chapters. And what he's really concerned about is to show that to have that kind of man-centeredness is to misunderstand two great things. First of all, it is to misunderstand the very nature of the Christian gospel. Because the Christian gospel humbles man and glorifies God. He demonstrates that. He illustrates it in four ways in the opening two chapters. Clearly, these Corinthians hadn't fully understand, understood the gospel. And so he, he reminds them that in the gospel, no flesh is to glory in God's presence. He says, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. There are four ways in which that is so. He first of all, points out to them that the very message that God brings to us in the gospel humbles men and glorifies God. It's the message of the cross. And if ever there was an event that humbles man and glorifies God, it is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He points out that to Jewish people, the cross was a stumbling block to Greeks, it was foolishness, but to all who were called, the cross of Christ and the message of the cross was both the power and the wisdom of God. So although Jews demanded signs and Greeks sought wisdom, the apostles preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. The very message of the cross does not flatter us. It tells us that we are sinners and we need to be redeemed. We need to be lifted out of the horrible pit by the grace of an almighty Savior. So, so far is the gospel from elevating human beings that it actually humbles them into the dust. But at the same time, through the cross and through the work of Christ, we are lifted up and made children of God. So the gospel of the cross humbles men and glorifies God. And then he also demonstrates how that is true in another way. The people that God chooses to be his, they're non-entities. That is the word that Paul actually uses here in the original language. He describes people whom God chooses as not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty. Ordinary people, people like you and me. So God chooses the unworthy, the unknown, the inconspicuous, the insignificant. He doesn't exalt stars and celebrities 
and make them his special favorites. He chooses to save ordinary sinful human beings like us. Base things of the world, things which are despised, has God chosen. Things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh, whether intellectual flesh, whether political flesh, whether star flesh, should glory in his presence. God humbles men. He exalts himself by the people that he chooses. And then he demonstrates it in a third way. He says, how does God choose to communicate the message to us? He was, after all, speaking into a Greek culture where the one means of communication that stood out above all others was Brahma. So had God chosen Brahma as the means by which the gospel should be made known. Well, Paul made it clear that when he came to the Corinthians, he did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring the testimony of God. He determined not to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and he was with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching, he said, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So the means by which God has chosen to make the gospel known is the means by which human beings are converted to himself, and that is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does not do it our way. He does it his way. And as a result, we are humbled and God is glorified. And then in the fourth place, he demonstrates quite clearly here that the way in which the gospel has been made accessible to us and available to us is by the revelation of the Holy Spirit in the words of Holy Scripture. And he makes it clear that the things that lay in the mind of God, the great decrees of God, God has brought out and made known to us by the Holy Spirit in spiritual words. And these spiritual words have been given to the apostles so that the Spirit who searches the deep things of God has brought out of the mind of God things that we need to hear and know in order to become his children. And it's the Holy Spirit who makes those things known to us through the words of Scripture. Paul puts it like this, These things we speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So God makes the gospel known to us from above, from heaven, by the Holy Spirit, not by human discovery and not by human cleverness. The scriptures are the revelation of God to human beings. And in doing that, God humbles men. 
and exalt himself. He puts it like this, but of him, that is of God, are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, that is, righteousness, sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. No flesh is to glory in God's presence. That being so, in elevating men, Paul, Cephas, Apollos, the Corinthians had got it all wrong. They misunderstood the very nature of the gospel itself. And Paul takes time and patience in the first two chapters to demonstrate that. But then, there was a second thing that they hadn't really fully understood. And that is the nature of Christian leadership. You see, when God decides to make the gospel known, he does so through ordinary human beings. And these ordinary human beings are taken up by the Holy Spirit and they become his instruments in the communication of the truth. But it's not the human being, it's not the instrument who matters. It's the truth, it's God, it's the one who speaks. And he shows us that here in chapter 3. For example, in the opening four verses, he tells us that to elevate leaders is a sign of immaturity. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. He says, although you have the Holy Spirit, you're behaving as if you were babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food. Until now you were not able to receive it, and you're still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like me and men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, he says, are you not carnal? You're acting in an unspiritual way. He actually uses two words in the original language. One is the word sarkinos, which means you're behaving like ordinary human beings. The other is the Greek word sarkikos, which means you're behaving like sinful human beings. You are Christians, you have the Holy Spirit, but you're behaving as if you didn't. So you're behaving like infants. And to elevate leaders, he says, is a sign of immaturity. And then he goes on to show that the work of the gospel is God's work and not ours. He says that in verses 5 to 9. And it came out very clearly in the translation that Nathan brought to us earlier on. What then is Paul? In the original language, that's a neuter. Not who then is Paul, but what then is Paul and what is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to everyone. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. He who plants, he who waters, they are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. He's painting there a picture. He's saying, in an agricultural metaphor, that only God can make things grow. 
He uses men like Paul and Apollos. He employs people to, to plant and to water. But only he can make things grow. So only God is anything. The work, in other words, is God's work. It's God's work. And then the third thing that he points out here in this chapter is not only are you behaving as spiritual infants, not only are you forgetting that the work is God's, but in the third place, the work must be done in God's way. And here he changes the metaphor to an architectural metaphor, a building metaphor. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For other foundation can no one lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is the master builder laying the one foundation, and that is Jesus Christ. Now other men were to build on that one foundation. But they were to build not with wood and hay and straw, but with gold and silver and precious stones. He's talking here about the proper materials that are to be used in the building up of God's kingdom. Precious things, permanent things, not things that can be blown away and burned up. Otherwise, the work that people do would be destroyed. So he's using this metaphor in order to establish this very basic and very important truth, namely, that the work is God's and it must be done in God's way. So only God is anything. He's establishing that. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So to elevate one man over another is to misunderstand the whole nature of Christian leadership. The church is holy. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't tamper with it, he is saying. Don't mess with it. Don't defile it. God lives in his people. So you must do the work in God's way. Because it's God's work. Well, he concludes that in verse 18 by saying, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Once again, he's drawing attention to the inadequacy of human beings to, to do things without the help of God. And he points out that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And God catches the wise in their own craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So don't do it in your own way. Don't try to be wiser than God. You do it, he's saying, in God's way. So man-centeredness is human wisdom. God's way is the cross. God's way is Jesus Christ and him crucified. God's way is the one foundation. And we are to build on that with gold and silver and precious stones. It is not great talents that God uses, said Marie McChain, but great likeness to Jesus Christ. My people's greatest need, he added, is my personal 
holiness. Adoniram Judson wrote, I crave such a pure zeal for God's glory that I may have a holy disinterestedness in whom God uses so that my Savior's dear name is exalted. That's the spirit that the Apostle Paul is here pleading for. And these words that form our text are his conclusion. Therefore, therefore, he's drawing all these threads together. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. And then he adds, not only are all things are yours, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, but the world, life, death, things present, things to come, all these things are yours and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. What did he mean? What did he mean by that? Well, he meant this. Paul and Cephas and Apollos are part of God's church. They belong to it. God has given them to the church. They're like farm workers. One plants, one waters. They're like builders in a construction team. What matters is the field and the harvest. What matters is the building. To elevate Paul is to devalue Apollos and Cephas and to neglect their importance. These men are God's rich provision for the church. God has given them to you. They're all yours. Paul is yours. Cephas is yours. Apollos is yours. They're all very different. If you look at these men from the pages of the New Testament, you will see that. The Apostle Paul was a great logician. He argued masterfully in his letters. He was an intellectual genius. And you find this wonderful logic in his letters. The Apostle Peter was much more pictorial in the way he spoke, using words that conveyed truth by pictures. Apollos was a great orator. They were very different. And God meant them to be different. He didn't intend them to be the same. There's this rich variety and diversity in God's servants. Well, they're your wealth, they're your heritage. They're your gifts. God has given them to you. Value them all. They're precious to you. God has sent them to you and given them to you. Don't despise them. Don't elevate one over the other. Don't say, oh, I prefer him to him. They're meant to be given to you in their diversity. And you're to value and prize them all. And as we look back into the history of the church, we thank God for Martin Luther and John Calvin. We thank God for George Whitfield and John Wesley. We thank God for Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott. These are God's gift to us. So instead of comparing and contrasting them, we give God thanks. Of course, they're not perfect. None of them is perfect. They all made mistakes. But they're God's gift to his church. And therefore, they're to be valued and prized as such. And this is a very precious thing because we are not meant to be like peas in a pod. We are not meant to be like postage stamps. We are meant to be ourselves. 
And that's a liberating thing. I don't have to pretend to be anybody else, and nobody else will certainly want to pretend to be me. I'm myself and you're yourself. And that's the glorious thing about God's gift to his church. So no more boasting about men, says Paul. He's here acting in such a pastoral way and so helpfully. But then you'll notice he adds these five things. He says, the world, life, death, things present, things to come. Why does he add those things? What's he really saying here? Well, think about these five things for a minute. Think of the world. When we think of the world, we naturally think of our natural environment. And it's a beautiful world. Once when we were visiting New Zealand, there were some television adverts that were shown regularly each evening before the news, showing places in New Zealand that were noted for their outstanding beauty. And they played that, uh, that wonderful song, What a Wonderful World. You remember it? That rich, deep voice of Armstrong. What a wonderful world. And it is a wonderful world. It's God's world beautiful we know that the world has been corrupted by sin we know that the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches and the love of other things coming in can easily distract us we know that we can sometimes be preoccupied with things in the world that prevent us from looking to the world to come it is a wonderful world, but it's also a world that has been tarnished and tainted by sin. So nature is red in tooth and claw. So he's speaking about the world. Then he mentions life. Life is good. Life is precious. Life is a gift of God to be valued from the moment of conception to the moment of death. But life is temporary... We are not here very long. It's like a vapor. And we can forget the life to come. For some time, I worshipped at Westminster Chapel in the 1950s, the late 1950s and early 1960s, where Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the minister. And he almost invariably finished every service with the words of the benediction from 2 Corinthians. And he would say, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all throughout this our short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage. And then forever in glory. He reminded the congregation every time that our lives are short, uncertain, and we are on a pilgrimage. That's life. Paul mentions death. An enemy. We're told in scripture that the power of death is in the hands of the devil. And he can frighten us with it and keep us in bondage to it. The fear of death. 
Death is a reality. We're all going to experience it unless our Lord returns. Every one of us has that in common. Whether you're a President of the United States of America or the Queen of England, or whether you're the humblest person in the land, every one of us will go the same way. Death. He mentions then the present. The present can devour our time and energy, can't it? We can be preoccupied with work, with problems, perhaps with grief. There's much to do, sometimes much to bear. And it's possible to lose sight of eternity because of the present. The present can sometimes be more of a problem to us than the future. But he also mentions the future. You can worry about the future. Young people worry about whether they're going to pass their exams and their grades and graduate. You worry about your career. Will I get a job? Young adults may worry about their families. Will they have enough to support themselves? They may worry about their health. Will they be fit and healthy enough to keep their families? Middle-aged people will wonder, well, can I cope? Will I survive? Will I be able to manage my middle years when my powers begin to decline? And elderly people can worry, what will happen to me when I get older, when perhaps mind and memory begin to fail? The future. Now Paul says, these things are yours. These five things are yours. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. So you belong to God. If you're his child, if you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, then you belong to Christ and you belong to God. So all these things are his and he is God's. He is the sovereign. He is the king. All things are under his control. He loved you. He loves you. The cross demonstrates that so gloriously. It's the great demonstration of the love of God. Paul in Romans 8 speaks about being more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he's using there a particular tense in the Greek verb that means who loved us at the cross. Who loved us in giving himself for us. He's talking about the cross there. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who loved us there on Calvary. Who loved us there as he took God's wrath. Who loved us there when he took away our sins and carried them himself. He loved me. So if I belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Then I belong to God. We are to think of these things in the light of the cross. We are to enjoy and delight in God. We are to care and be trustees of the world he's given to us. And that means that the world around us is, is given to us by God for our enjoyment. We are meant to enjoy nature. We are meant to enjoy the sunshine. We are meant to enjoy the sea and the air and the birds and the animals. We are meant to enjoy the world which is beautiful. Have you ever seen that fascinating seven-part series of films on the life of John Adams, the second American president? If you have, then you will remember that in the last episode, John Adams, now an old man, is, is out in the, the, the garden with his son, not, not John Quincy Adams, another of the sons, and as they're coming in, the son says to, to, to his father, it's, it's, it's cold, father, come inside. 
And as they walk inside, John Adams now uh, limping, he suddenly stops. And he says to his son, look at that flower. I tell you, son, I have seen the Queen of France bedecked with the most gorgeous jewelry imaginable. But I tell you, I have never seen anything so beautiful as that little flower. Rejoice evermore, he said. Rejoice evermore. And then he punched the air and shouted, Rejoice evermore. His son looked startled. And he said to his son, Well, don't you realize it's the Apostle Paul? Rejoice evermore. Well, we can rejoice in God's creation even though we may not belong to God. But when you belong to God, when you know God the Creator as your Father, joy is overwhelming. Joy is deepened. Joy becomes something that is so precious to you because you know that it's God's handiwork. So you don't go the way of many people in this modern world who, who look at a beautiful painting and they say, oh, what a wonderful artist. And they, they then look at a beautiful piece of cut glass and they say, what a wonderful glazier. And then they look at the universe and they say, what a wonderful accident. You don't do that. You see the hand of God in it all. The world. And it's right that Heaven above is softer blue and earth around is sweeter green and something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. It's not that people who are not Christians can't appreciate nature. It's rather that those who are Christians can see the hand of Christ in it all. The hand of God in it all. So everything is intensified and made more wonderful. This is my father's kingdom. This is my father's creation. The hands of my savior put the galaxies into place. The galaxies. He put them there. Christ put them there, you know. The vast, teeming cosmos. Christ put them there. All things are created by him and for him. He is before all things. In him, everything holds together. The whole universe this evening is held together by Christ. He's the great Christ, the mighty Christ. This is no Christ in a corner to be domesticated. This is the great and grand and glorious Son of God. So you see something of him in creation. And then not only that, but the world, as I said, has been corrupted by sin. But you can overcome the corruption in the world, the lust of the flesh, says John, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You can overcome that by faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So I can deal with lust in the eye. I can deal with lust in the flesh. I can deal with the pride of life, the things that are in the world, by faith in Jesus Christ, with whom I am one and in whose power I am able to live. So Christ is going to renew all things and change all things and bring about a new creation. So we can rejoice in the world. The meek 
Jesus said, will inherit the earth. Think of the world in the light of the cross. And then think of life in the light of the cross. Paul talks about life, which is, as I said, precious and good. It's an opportunity life to serve God and to serve one another. To care for other people. To look after our own bodies and souls and keep them fit. But it's temporary. We are not to cling to it as if it's the only thing that exists. Do you remember that wonderful hymn by Bernard of Clairvaux? 12th century medieval mystic. He wrote, Brief life is here our portion. Brief sorrow, heart-filled care, the life that knows no ending, the tearless life, is there, there. So we look forward to a city which has foundations. We look forward to home. We look forward to the final stage of the journey when we shall enter into heaven itself. Life is ours. But it's temporary and ultimately we are going home to a better life, a fuller life, a richer life. Isn't that something to look forward to? We once had a nightmare journey back from New Zealand to the United Kingdom. We left Auckland 13 hours late. We arrived at Los Angeles. They put us up in a hotel for two hours and then we were scheduled to make the ongoing journey to London. We took off probably eight or nine hours after we'd waited in the airport following our brief, brief, brief visit to a hotel. And then eventually we got to London and we couldn't land. It was fogbound, so we had to go to Frankfurt. We got off at Frankfurt Airport and everybody, because so much of Europe was fogbound, it seemed that everybody in Europe was there. We couldn't sit down. We had to stand for about five hours. And then we got on a plane for London. And we circled London about five, six times. And eventually, by navigation, we landed. It took us 66 hours to travel from New Zealand to London. It was Christmas time. And our son was waiting there at the exit gate. When we saw him, we were home. Home for Christmas. After a nightmare journey, home for Christmas. Well, sometimes the last stage of our journey through life can be tough. But we'll be home. Not home for Christmas. Home forever. Home forever. Won't that be wonderful? Oh, that will be glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory. Be glory for me. I'm home. Life. Life is ours. Even to the very last breath. And then, well, I've really suggested it already. Death is ours. It's an enemy, of course. It's, it's a powerful enemy, the last enemy. We are told the devil has the power of death. But the devil has been defeated. Jesus conquered him on the cross. Jesus arose and trampled him under his feet. So death is, is like is like a, a bee or a wasp that has no sting. It can't harm you. 
It's like, it's like going through a, a deep, dark valley. And across the valley there are these shadows. But they're only shadows. You can walk through a shadow. And there are only shadows there because there's a glorious light at the end of the valley. There is light in the valley of death now for me. Jesus is the light of the world. So we go through the shadow of death. It's the valley of the shadow of death. Into the full blaze and glory of his presence. Death is ours. Its sting is gone. The power of death has been broken. Jesus triumphed over death. So death is ours. Don't be afraid of it. Dying may be a cause for alarm. But death is but the gate of life immortal. I was present at the death of my father. He had a third fatal stroke. My mother and I stood by his bed for the last few moments of his life. We'd been there off and on for ten days in hospital, and we were there when he died. He, he took his last breath. His breathing got slower and slower. The, the, the intervals were longer and longer between each breath, and then finally... He took his last breath. He'd gone. And the words of that wonderful hymn came into my mind. So when my latest breath shall rend the veil in twain, by death I shall escape from death and life immortal gain. He'd gone home. He wasn't with us anymore. We couldn't communicate with him. He couldn't communicate with us. But he'd gone home. Death is going home to Jesus, home to God, our dwelling place. Death is ours. And then Paul mentions the present, and sometimes the present can be tough. Life is full and busy, as I said. Pressures bear in upon us, burdens, cares, sorrows. But we are not to be ruled by those, real though they are. We have the supply of God's daily grace. My grace is sufficient for you, said the, the Lord to, to the Apostle Paul, when, when Paul, you remember, felt his own weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And grace is, is a wonderful thing. It's, it's like a tower and a fortress. You come into the grace of God and you receive strength and power to live. You receive a, a, it's a fortress, so you receive ammunition with which to fight the enemy. Grace. It's a sweet and beautiful thing. God's love for us. God's grace in Jesus Christ. The grace of our great high priest, the one who has all power, the one who is our sympathetic high priest, the one who has given us and gives us the Holy Spirit. So if, if I have to die, he'll have grace ready for me. If I have to suffer, he'll have grace ready for me. I won't receive it until tomorrow, if it's tomorrow's grace, but it will be there. I will receive it. Grace upon grace is found in Christ. One of our young, young, young lads in, in, in our church back in Wales, in, in Bridge End, he, he wrote a little piece in, in our church magazine, my favorite hymn. And eight years of age he was. He said, my favorite hymn is Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And he, he wrote in, in, in the article, my favorite verse is, he was eight years of age, 
through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. I don't know what his mom and dad thought about that. But, but he was right. He was right. And those of us who are older can say it even more. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So, when we think of the present, we have God's grace. And when we think of the future, we may be worried, we may be afraid, anxious, but the future is in the hands of God our Savior. Whatever happens to us, he is with us. When our lives are hidden with Christ in God, what if tomorrow's cares were here without its rest? I'd rather he unlock the day, and as the hours swing open, say, My will is best. The Christ who holds us, holds us in hands that were pierced for us on the cross. The Christ who brings us safely home to glory is the Christ who has died for us and lives for us and will direct us and lead us right through to the very end of our lives. One of our great Welsh hymns puts this so wonderfully. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death, what a name for Jesus. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee. So Paul is saying here to these Corinthians, and of course we receive these words ourselves this evening. Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. So it's all right. You're safe in the hands of your faithful God and Creator. Maybe you don't know this, Jesus. Maybe you can't say all things are mine. Maybe you're outside it all, looking on as a spectator, even a commentator. You're not in the family. You haven't been brought into the kingdom of God. Well, why do you think Christ came? Why do you think God gave us his son? He did that in order that people like you and me should turn from our sins to him and turn from our rebellion and enmity and trust in the living, powerful Lord of glory who lived for us, who died for us, who lives again for us. Why not turn to him? Why not say, Lord Jesus, you are God, you are great, your cross is all I want, your blood is all I need, your righteousness is all I need before a holy God. I want you to be mine, Lord. I want to be yours. Save me, Lord. Save me. And he will. He's faithful. He's true. One Lord, one empire, says the hymn writer, all secures. He reigns and life and death are yours. From 
Earth to heaven one song shall ring. The Lord omnipotent is king. And I say, hallelujah. Well, may God bless his word to us. Amen. evening they've been married for almost 50 years four children 11 grandchildren pastored churches in several countries including New Zealand Australia uh, London which is not really a country but uh, a big city and the Lord has used them um, right now there in their uh, current place in Wells and uh, and is using him at the church at large as well. So spends sometimes uh, some time doing some guest lecturing, uh, preaches in an, in an itinerant way there in Wells, and uh, the Lord has seen fit to allow him to be with us uh, for this weekend. And uh, we were a, we were a privileged people as a result of that. So we want to give you a good Southern welcome and just say we're so thankful to the Lord. For both of you, I want to read from read to you from First Corinthians, chapter three. Hear the word of the Lord. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. 
According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again... The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this sweet and precious privilege that we have this evening to be able to gather here together to worship you. And God, we thank you that you have been kind to reveal yourself to us through your word. And God, we thank you that you have been kind to display your glory and your majesty and your splendor And God, we pray that this evening, Lord, that you would be pleased uh, to turn our face towards you, that we may behold you as you are. And God, we thank you that in your holiness and in your righteousness, that you are too holy, that you cannot be looked upon by the natural eye. God, we thank you that you've given us Christ through which we're able to see you and we're able to worship you and we're able to love you and we're able to live for you. And so we thank you for the kindness that you've poured out richly upon us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God, we ask this evening that you would be pleased to exalt high the person and work of Christ. Lord, we we do not, Lord, it would be foolish for any of us to try or attempt to build on any other man's foundation. There is no other foundation other than the foundation which has been laid in Christ Jesus. There's no hope that we possess outside of Christ. And so tonight we're not here to elevate one pastor over another. We're not here to elevate one man over another. We're not here to elevate one lady over another. Lord, we want to exalt in one person, and that one person is Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would help 
uh, our brother this evening, Mr. Davis, and we pray that you would uh, anoint the preaching this evening, fill him with your Holy Spirit to disclose the things of Jesus Christ to us from your word. And God, we pray that you would be pleased to turn turn the facet of Christ another notch so that we may behold more and more and more of his beauty. And God, we trust that what you reveal about Jesus Christ tonight will be enough to satisfy our thirsting and hungry souls. So get the glory, we pray tonight, as we sing to you, as we pray to you, uh, as we hear from you, as we depend upon you. Do this, Lord. Do this, God. We, we are a, a needy people, Lord. We, we, we're so needy, we don't even have the ability to be able to comprehend the depth through which we need you and by which we need you. So, God, we, we cry out to you and, and, and beg of you, implore you to dwell among us in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you, Lord. Make us a people who are saturated with you. Make us a people that you are pleased uh, to dwell among. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would do surgery on us this evening and just expose our sinfulness, Lord. Expose our indifference. Expose any sort of um, unbelief that may be there. Deal appropriately with us, we pray. And deal with us in ways that we don't even know how to request uh, this evening. Um, We just... We just ask, Lord, we just beg that you would turn your face towards us in a favorable way this evening. Do this, we pray, for your glory and for our joy in Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll read again 21 to 23. 1 Corinthians 21 to 23, chapter 3. Therefore let no man boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now, why did Paul say that here in this letter? If you're familiar with the Corinthian church, you will know that there were divisions among them. Divisions due to man-centeredness. Paul was concerned about that, and he wrote about it. He wrote about it in the opening chapter. There were people in Corinth who were saying... I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. And Paul realized that that was a fundamental error. He deals with it throughout these opening four chapters. And what he's really concerned about is to show that to have that kind of man-centeredness is to misunderstand two great things. First of all, It is to misunderstand the very nature of the Christian gospel. Because the Christian gospel humbles man and glorifies God. 
He demonstrates that. He illustrates it in four ways in the opening two chapters. Clearly, these Corinthians haven't fully understand, understood the gospel. And so he, he reminds them that in the gospel, no flesh is to glory in God's presence. He says, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. There are four ways in which that is so. He, first of all, points out to them that the very message that God brings to us in the gospel humbles men and glorifies God. It's the message of the cross. And if ever there was an event that humbles man and glorifies God, it is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He points out that to Jewish people, the cross was a stumbling block. To Greeks, it was foolishness. But to all who were called, the cross of Christ and the message of the cross was both the power and the wisdom of God. So, although Jews demanded signs and Greeks sought wisdom, the apostles preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. The very message of the cross does not flatter us. It tells us that we are sinners and we need to be redeemed. We need to be lifted out of the horrible pit by the grace of an almighty saviour. So, so far is the gospel from elevating human beings that it actually humbles them into the dust. But at the same time, through the cross and through the work of Christ, we are lifted up and made children of God. So the gospel of the cross humbles men and glorifies God. And then he also demonstrates how that is true in another way. The people that God chooses to be his, they're non-entities. That is the word that Paul actually uses here in the original language. He describes people whom God chooses as not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty. Ordinary people, people like you and me. So God chooses the unworthy, the unknown, the inconspicuous, the insignificant. He doesn't exalt stars and celebrities and make them his special favorites. He chooses to save ordinary, sinful human beings like us. Base things of the world, things which are despised, has God chosen things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh, whether intellectual flesh, whether political flesh, whether star flesh, should glory in his presence. God humbles men. He exalts himself by the people that he chooses. And then he demonstrates it in a third way. He says, how does God choose to communicate the message to us? He was, after all, speaking into a Greek culture where the one means of communication that stood out above all others was Brahma. So had God chosen Brahma 
as the means by which the gospel should be made known. Well, Paul made it clear that when he came to the Corinthians, he did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring the testimony of God. He determined not to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and he was with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching, he said, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So the means by which God has chosen to make the gospel known is the means by which human beings are converted to himself, and that is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does not do it our way. He does it his way. And as a result, we are humbled and God is glorified. And then in the fourth place, he demonstrates quite clearly here that the way in which the gospel has been made accessible to us and available to us is by the revelation of the Holy Spirit in the words of Holy Scripture. And he makes it clear that the things that lay in the mind of God, the great decrees of God, God has brought out and made known to us by the Holy Spirit in spiritual words. And these spiritual words have been given to the apostles so that the Spirit who searches the deep things of God has brought out of the mind of God things that we need to hear and know in order to become his children. And it's the Holy Spirit who makes those things known to us through the words of Scripture. Paul puts it like this, These things we speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So God makes the gospel known to us from above, from heaven, by the Holy Spirit, not by human discovery and not by human cleverness. The scriptures are the revelation of God to human beings. And in doing that, God humbles men and exalts himself. He puts it like this, but of him, that is of God, are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, that is, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. No flesh is to glory in God's presence. That being so, in elevating men, Paul, Cephas, Apollos, the Corinthians had got it all wrong. They misunderstood the very nature of the gospel itself. And Paul takes time and patience in the first two chapters to demonstrate that. But then, there was a second thing that they hadn't really fully understood. And that is the nature of Christian leadership. You see, when God decides to make the gospel known, he does so through ordinary human beings. 
And these ordinary human beings are taken up by the Holy Spirit and they become his instruments in the communication of the truth. But it's not the human being, it's not the instrument who matters. It's the truth, it's God, it's the one who speaks. And he shows us that here in chapter 3. For example, in the opening four verses, he tells us that to elevate leaders is a sign of immaturity. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. He says, although you have the Holy Spirit, you're behaving as if you were babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food. Until now you were not able to receive it, and you're still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like me and men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, he says, are you not carnal? You're acting in an unspiritual way. He actually uses two words in the original language. One is the word sarkinos, which means you're behaving like ordinary human beings. The other is the Greek word sarkikos, which means you're behaving like sinful human beings. You are Christians, you have the Holy Spirit, but you're behaving as if you didn't. So you're behaving like infants. And to elevate leaders, he says, is a sign of immaturity. And then he goes on to show that the work of the gospel is God's work and not ours. He says that in verses 5 to 9. And it came out very clearly in the translation that Nathan brought to us earlier on. What then is Paul? In the original language, that's a neuter. Not who then is Paul, but what then is Paul and what is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to everyone. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. He who plants, he who waters, they are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. He's painting there a picture. He's saying, in an agricultural metaphor, that only God can make things grow. He uses men, like Paul and Apollos. He employs people to, to plant and to water. But only he can make things grow. So only God is anything. The work, in other words, is God's work. It's God's work. And then the third thing that he points out here in this chapter is not only are you behaving as spiritual infants, not only are you forgetting that the work is God's, but in the third place, the work must be done in God's way. And here he changes the metaphor to an architectural metaphor, a building metaphor. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For other foundation can no one lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
So Paul is the master builder laying the one foundation, and that is Jesus Christ. Now other men were to build on that one foundation, but they were to build not with wood and hay and straw, but with gold and silver and precious stones. He's talking here about the proper materials that are to be used in the building up of God's kingdom. Precious things, permanent things, not things that can be blown away and burned up. Otherwise, the work that people do would be destroyed. So he's using this metaphor in order to establish this very basic and very important truth, namely, that the work is God's and it must be done in God's way. So only God is anything. He's establishing that. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So to elevate one man over another is to misunderstand the whole nature of Christian leadership. The church is holy. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't tamper with it, he is saying. Don't mess with it. Don't defile it. God lives in his people. So you must do the work in God's way. Because it's God's work. Well, he concludes that in verse 18 by saying, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. Once again, he's drawing attention to the inadequacy of human beings to, to do things without the help of God. And he points out that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And God catches the wise in their own craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So don't do it in your own way. Don't try to be wiser than God. You do it, he's saying, in God's way. So man-centeredness is human wisdom. God's way is the cross. God's way is Jesus Christ and him crucified. God's way is the one foundation. And we are to build on that with gold and silver and precious stones. It is not great talents that God uses, said Marie McChain, but great likeness to Jesus Christ. My people's greatest need, he added, is my personal holiness. Adoniram Judson wrote, I crave such a pure zeal for God's glory that I may have a holy disinterestedness in whom God uses so that my Savior's dear name is exalted. That's the spirit that the Apostle Paul is here pleading for. And these words that form our text are his conclusion. Therefore, therefore, he's drawing all these threads together. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. And then he adds, not only are all things are yours, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, but the world, life, death, things present, things to come, all these things are yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. What did he mean? What did he mean by that? Well, he meant this. 
Paul and Cephas and Apollos are part of God's church. They belong to it. God has given them to the church. They're like farm workers. One plants, one waters. They're like builders in a construction team. What matters is the field and the harvest. What matters is the building. To elevate Paul is to devalue Apollos and Cephas and to neglect their importance. These men are God's rich provision for the church. God has given them to you. They're all yours. Paul is yours. Cephas is yours. Apollos is yours. They're all very different. If you look at these men from the pages of the New Testament, you will see that. The Apostle Paul was a great logician. He argued masterfully in his letters. He was an intellectual genius. And you find this wonderful logic in his letters. The Apostle Peter was much more pictorial in the way he spoke, using words that conveyed truth by pictures. Apollos was a great orator. They were very different. And God meant them to be different. He didn't intend them to be the same. There's this rich variety and diversity in God's servants. Well, they're your wealth, they're your heritage. They're your gifts. God has given them to you. Value them all. They're precious to you. God has sent them to you and given them to you. Don't despise them. Don't elevate one over the other. Don't say, oh, I prefer him to him. They're meant to be given to you in their diversity. And you're to value and prize them all. And as we look back into the history of the church, we thank God for Martin Luther and John Calvin. We thank God for George Whitfield and John Wesley. We thank God for Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott. These are God's gift to us. So instead of comparing and contrasting them, we give God thanks. Of course, they're not perfect. None of them is perfect. They all made mistakes. But they're God's gift to his church. And therefore, they're to be valued and prized as such. And this is a very precious thing because we are not meant to be like peas in a pod. We are not meant to be like postage stamps. We are meant to be ourselves. And that's a liberating thing. I don't have to pretend to be anybody else. And nobody else will certainly want to pretend to be me. I'm myself and you're yourself. And that's the glorious thing about God's gift to his church. So no more boasting about men, says Paul. He's here acting in such a pastoral way and so helpfully. But then you'll notice he adds these five things. He says, the world, life, death, things present, things to come. Why does he add those things? What's he really saying here? Well, think about these five things for a minute. Think of the world. When we think of the world, we naturally think of our natural environment. And it's a beautiful world. Once when we were visiting New Zealand, there were some television adverts 
that were shown regularly each evening before the news, showing places in New Zealand that were noted for their outstanding beauty. And they played that, uh, that wonderful song, What a Wonderful World. You remember it? That rich, deep voice of Armstrong. What a wonderful world. And it is a wonderful world. It's God's world. It's beautiful. We know that the world has been corrupted by sin. We know that the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the love of other things coming in can easily distract us. We know that we can sometimes be preoccupied with things in the world that prevent us from looking to the world to come. It is a wonderful world, but it's also a world that has been tarnished and tainted by sin. So nature is red in tooth and claw. So he's speaking about the world. Then he mentions life. Life is good. Life is precious. Life is a gift of God to be valued from the moment of conception to the moment of death. But life is temporary. We are not here very long. It's like a vapor. And we can forget the life to come. For some time... I worshipped at Westminster Chapel in the 1950s, the late 1950s and early 1960s, where Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the minister, and he almost invariably finished every service with the words of the benediction from 2 Corinthians, and he would say, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all throughout this our short uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage and then forever in glory he reminded the congregation every time that our lives are short uncertain and we are on a pilgrimage that's life Paul mentions death an enemy we're told in scripture that the power of Death is in the hands of the devil, and he can frighten us with it and keep us in bondage to it, the fear of death. Death is a reality. We're all going to experience it unless our Lord returns. Every one of us has that in common. Whether you're a president of the United States of America or the Queen of England, or whether you're the humblest person in the land, every one of us will go the same way. Death. He mentions then the present. The present can devour our time and energy, can't it? We can be preoccupied with work, with problems, perhaps with grief. There's much to do, sometimes much to bear. And it's possible to lose sight of eternity because of the present. The present can sometimes be more of a problem to us than the future. But he also mentions the future. You can worry about the future. Young people worry about whether they're going to pass their exams and their grades and graduate. You worry about your career. Will I get a job? Young adults may worry about their families. Will they have enough to support themselves? They may worry about their health. Will they be 
fit and healthy enough to keep their families. Middle-aged people will wonder, well, can I cope? Will I survive? Will I be able to manage my middle years when my powers begin to decline? And elderly people can worry, what will happen to me when I get older, when perhaps mind and memory begin to fail? The future. Now Paul says, these things are yours. These five things are yours. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. So you belong to God. If you're his child, if you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, then you belong to Christ and you belong to God. So all these things are his and he is God's. He is the sovereign. He is the king. All things are under his control. He loved you. He loves you. The cross demonstrates that so gloriously. It's the great demonstration of the love of God. Paul in Romans 8 speaks about being more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he's using there a particular tense in the Greek verb that means who loved us at the cross. Who loved us in giving himself for us. He's talking about the cross there. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, who loved us there on Calvary, who loved us there as he took God's wrath, who loved us there when he took away our sins and carried them himself. He loved me. So if I belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, then I belong to God. We are to think of these things in the light of the cross. We are to enjoy and delight in God. We are to care and be trustees of the world he's given to us. And that means that the world around us is, is given to us by God for our enjoyment. We are meant to enjoy nature. We are meant to enjoy the sunshine. We are meant to enjoy the sea and the air and the birds and the animals. We are meant to enjoy the world which is beautiful. Have you ever seen that? fascinating seven-part series of films on the life of John Adams, the second American president. If you have, then you will remember that in the last episode, John Adams, now an old man, is, is out in the, the, the garden with his son, not, not John Quincy Adams, another of the sons, and as they're coming in, the son says to, to, to his father, it's, it's, it's cold, father, come inside. And as they walk inside, John Adams now limping, he suddenly stops. And he says to his son, look at that flower. I tell you, son, I have seen the Queen of France bedecked with the most gorgeous jewelry imaginable. But I tell you, I have never seen anything so beautiful as that little flower. Rejoice evermore, he said. Rejoice evermore. And then he punched the air and shouted, Rejoice evermore. His son looked startled. And he said to his son, Well, don't you realize it's the Apostle Paul? Rejoice evermore. Well, we can rejoice in God's creation even though we may not belong to God. But when you belong to God, when you know God the Creator is your Father, joy is overwhelming. Joy is deepened. 
joy becomes something that is so precious to you because you know that it's God's handiwork. So you don't go the way of many people in this modern world who, who look at a beautiful painting and they say, oh, what a wonderful artist. And they, they then look at a beautiful piece of cut glass and they say, what a wonderful glazier. And then they look at the universe and they say, what a wonderful accident. You don't do that. You see the hand of God in it all. The world. And it's right that heaven above is softer blue and earth around is sweeter green and something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. It's not that people who are not Christians can't appreciate nature. It's rather that those who are Christians can see the hand of Christ in it all. The hand of God in it all. So everything is intensified and made more wonderful. This is my father's kingdom. This is my father's creation. The hands of my savior put the galaxies into place. The galaxies. He put them there. Christ put them there, you know. The vast, teeming cosmos. Christ put them there. All things are created by him and for him. He is before all things. In him, everything holds together. The whole universe this evening is held together by Christ. He's the great Christ. The mighty Christ. This is no Christ in a corner to be domesticated. This is the great and grand and glorious Son of God. So you see something of him in creation. And then not only that, but the world, as I said, has been corrupted by sin. But you can overcome the corruption in the world, the lust of the flesh, says John, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You can overcome that by faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So I can deal with lust in the eye, I can deal with lust in the flesh, I can deal with the pride of life. The things that are in the world by faith in Jesus Christ with whom I am one, and in whose power I am able to live. So Christ is going to renew all things and change all things and bring about a new creation. So we can rejoice in the world. The meek, Jesus said, will inherit the earth. Think of the world in the light of the cross. And then think of life. In the light of the cross. Paul talks about life which is as I said precious and good. It's an opportunity life to serve God and to serve one another. To care for other people. To look after our own bodies and souls and keep them fit. But it's temporary. We are not to cling to it as if it's the only thing that exists. Do you remember that wonderful hymn by Bernard of Clairvaux? 12th century Medieval, mystic, he wrote, Brief life is here our portion, brief sorrow, heart-filled care, the life that knows no ending, the tearless life, is there, there. So we look 
forward to a city which has foundations. We look forward to home. We look forward to the final stage of the journey when we shall enter into heaven itself. Life is ours, but it's temporary and ultimately we are going home to a better life, a fuller life, a richer life. Isn't that something to look forward to? We once had a nightmare journey back from New Zealand to the United Kingdom. We left Auckland 13 hours late. We arrived at Los Angeles. They put us up in a hotel for two hours, and then we were scheduled to make the ongoing journey to London. We took off probably eight or nine hours after we'd waited in the airport following our brief brief visit to a hotel and then eventually we got to London and we couldn't land, it was fog bound so we had to go to Frankfurt we got off at Frankfurt airport and everybody because so much of Europe was fog bound it seemed that everybody in Europe was there we couldn't sit down, we had to stand for about five hours and then we got on a plane for London and we circled London about five, six times and eventually by navigation we landed took us 66 hours to travel from New Zealand to London. It was Christmas time, and our son was waiting there at the exit gate. When we saw him, we were home. Home for Christmas. After a nightmare journey, home for Christmas. Well, sometimes the last stage of our journey through life can be tough, but we'll be home, not home for Christmas. Home forever. Home forever. Won't that be wonderful? Oh, that will be glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory. Be glory for me. I'm home. Life. Life is ours. Even to the very last breath. And then, well, I've really suggested it already. Death is ours. It's an enemy, of course. It's, it's a powerful enemy, the last enemy. We are told the devil has the power of death. But the devil has been defeated. Jesus conquered him on the cross. Jesus arose and trampled him under his feet. So death is, is like, is like a, a bee or a wasp that has no sting. It can't harm you. It's like, it's like going through a, a deep, dark valley. And across the valley there are these shadows. But they're only shadows. You can walk through a shadow. And there are only shadows there because there's a glorious light at the end of the valley. There is light in the valley of death now for me. Jesus is the light of the world. So we go through the shadow of death. It's the valley of the shadow of death into the full blaze and glory of his presence. Death is ours. Its sting is gone. The power of death has been broken. Jesus triumphed over death. So death is ours. Don't be afraid of it. Dying may be a cause for alarm, but death is but the gate of life immortal. I was present at the death of my father. He had a third 
fatal stroke. My mother and I stood by his bed for the last few moments of his life. We'd been there off and on for ten days in hospital, and we were there when he died. He, he took his last breath. His breathing got slower and slower. The, the, the intervals were longer and longer between each breath, and then finally he took his last breath. He'd gone. And the words of that wonderful hymn came into my mind. So when my latest breath shall rend the veil in twain, by death I shall escape from death and life immortal gain. He'd gone home. He wasn't with us anymore. We couldn't communicate with him. He couldn't communicate with us. But he'd gone home. Death is going home to Jesus. Home to God. Our dwelling place. Death is ours. And then Paul mentions the present. And sometimes the present can be tough. Life is full and busy, as I said. Pressures bear in upon us. Burdens, cares, sorrows. But we are not to be ruled by those, real though they are. We have the supply of God's daily grace. My grace is sufficient for you, said the, the Lord to, to the Apostle Paul. When, when Paul, you remember, felt his own weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And grace is, is a wonderful thing. It's, it's like a tower and a fortress. You come into the grace of God and you receive strength and power to live. You receive a, a, it's a fortress, so you receive ammunition with which to fight the enemy. Grace. It's a sweet and beautiful thing. God's love for us. God's grace in Jesus Christ. The grace of our great high priest, the one who has all power, the one who is our sympathetic high priest, the one who has given us and gives us the Holy Spirit. So if, if I have to die, he'll have grace ready for me. If I have to suffer, he'll have grace ready for me. I won't receive it until tomorrow, if it's tomorrow's grace, but it will be there. I will receive it. Grace upon grace is found in Christ. One of our young, young, young lads in, in, in our church back in Wales, in, in Bridge End, he, he wrote a little piece in, in our church magazine, my favorite hymn. And eight years of age he was. He said, my favorite hymn is Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And he, he wrote in, in, in the article, my favorite verse is, he was eight years of age, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. I don't know what his mom and dad thought about that. But, but he was right. He was right. And those of us who are older can say it even more. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So, when we think of the present, we have God's grace. And when we think of the future, we may be worried, we may be afraid, anxious, but the future is in the hands of God our Savior. Whatever happens to us, he is with us when our lives are hidden with Christ in God. What if tomorrow's cares were here without its rest? I'd rather he unlock the day and as the hours swing open, say, my will is best. The Christ who holds us, 
holds us in hands that were pierced for us on the cross. The Christ who brings us safely home to glory is the Christ who has died for us and lives for us and will direct us and lead us right through to the very end of our lives. One of our great Welsh hymns puts this so wonderfully. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death, what a name for Jesus. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee. So Paul is saying here to these Corinthians, and of course we receive these words ourselves this evening. Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. So it's all right. You're safe in the hands of your faithful God and Creator. Maybe you don't know this, Jesus. Maybe you can't say all things are mine. Maybe you're outside it all, looking on as a spectator, even a commentator. You're not in the family. You haven't been brought into the kingdom of God. Well, why do you think Christ came? Why do you think God gave us his son? He did that in order that people like you and me should turn from our sins to him and turn from our rebellion and enmity and trust in the living, powerful Lord of glory who lived for us, who died for us, who lives again for us. Why not turn to him? Why not say, Lord Jesus, you are God, you are great, your cross is all I want, your blood is all I need, your righteousness is all I need before a holy God. I want you to be mine, Lord. I want to be yours. Save me, Lord. Save me. And he will. He's faithful. He's true. One Lord, one empire, says the hymn writer, all secures. He reigns and life and death are yours. From earth to heaven one song shall ring. The Lord omnipotent is king. And I say, hallelujah. Well, may God bless his word to us.